open a U.S. history book, and chances are its author will quickly point out January 1st, 1863. The date, President Abraham Lincoln, with one proclamation, orders and declares that all persons held as slaves shall be free. What that same history book might fail to mention is what happened to these birds once they arrived on the shores of Galveston, Texas, more than two years after Lincoln wrote them. In the 1860s, word didn't travel like it did now. And in 1865, months after General Robert E. Lee's surrender, word of the end of the Civil War had yet to hit the southern state and its quarter of a million slaves. And then came General Gordon Granger's arrival in Galveston, June 19, 1865. And General Order Number 3, all slaves are free. Juneteenth was born. While Juneteenth celebrations continued to varying degrees in the U.S. for decades, it would take until 1980 for Texas to become the first state to declare it a holiday. Today, 47 states recognize it and the District of Columbia. A chapter of our history for far too long left out of the books designed to document it, but no longer. Juneteenth, or as the National Museum of African American History and Culture now calls it, our country's second Independence Day. During the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation of Proclamation on September 22, 1862, and it became effective on January 1, 1863, declaring that all enslaved persons in the Confederate States of America, in rebellion and not in Union hands, were freed. This part of that, the part of that history, never, the part that historians never tell us is that on New Year's Eve, before the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, black Americans, freed and chattel enslaved from all over America, prayed into the night, late into the night, for the ungodly injustice of slavery to end. Texas was a state that was growing rapidly as people spread west and many slaveholders wanting to escape the fighting in the east headed to Texas, bringing their slaves with them. Most ended up living in rural areas which swelled the ranks of the enslaved in Texas to one quarter of a million. Despite the surrender of General Robert E. Lee at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9, 1865, the Western Army of the Confederate did not surrender until June 2nd, 1865. On Monday morning, June 19th, 1865, General Major, Major General Gordon Granger arrived on the island of Galveston, Texas to take command of more than 2,000 federal troops who had recently landed there to enforce the emancipation and to oversee a peaceful transition of power. Additionally, they nullified all laws passed within Texas during the war by Confederate lawmakers. The message that went out that day in Texas, which for the first time became the message of liberation for enslaved people, was on that date, June 19, 1865. The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present home and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts, and they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. 
The very next year, a celebration was held in Galveston, Texas on June 19th, 1866, called Jubilee Day. And to many people, and to people of color, this is viewed as America's second Independence Day because this is where the promise of the Constitution became reality for all of its nation's citizens. Over the years, Juneteenth celebrations have varied. They've ebbed and flowed, and they've come and gone. And usually there's been a focus on black culture, on singing Negro spirituals, on prayer and Bible readings and poetry readings and artworks and things from black authors and dancing and celebration. Our own multi-ethnic denomination, which is now one-third multi-ethnic, and that's what makes us and has made us for the past three decades the third fastest growing denomination in the United States of America percentage-wise. Next Saturday, all over our country, we'll have places of prayer and singing of Negro spirituals and reading of the Bible and historical remembrances and reading of poetry and observing of art of black authors and dancing with various... uh, kinds of historical African attire, all commemorating June 19th, 1865. And one of the things that people of all ethnicities long for in our nation right now are solutions. How do we move past the racial and social tensions that are dividing our country right now and, of course, are being amped up uh, you know, by biased media and politicians and by many schools of higher learning, and by fringe activist groups, and frankly, some thugs and criminals who are taking advantage of the tensions out there and are acting out. I want to suggest to you today two key tools in the process of racial reconciliation are confession and forgiveness. James 5.16, one of the texts for today, instructs us, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Yes, part of the context here is praying for the sick to be healed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in a text that has to do with the Lord's table, communion, which we will be doing later in our worship service as a worship uh, act, as sacred act, he said that unaddressed sin was the reason that some people in Corinth were sick and why some of them had even died. Our text continues here in James chapter 5. In verse 17 it says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly and it would not, that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's the power of prayer. That's the power of confession and confessing sins to one another. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, it uses this very same Greek word here, hama legeo. Hama is where we get our word homo from, the same one. And legeo is the word or legia, it's logic or reason. And homilageo there in Matthew 10, 32 says, whoever homilageos me, whoever confesses me before others, I will homilageo, I will confess before my Father in heaven. That Greek word homilageo has a range of meaning. To confess, to admit, to say, to plainly say, to acknowledge, to promise, to claim, and to profess. And one of our most well-known uses of this verse in the Bible is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you homilageo with your mouth, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you homilageo, that you confess and are saved. Confession in and of itself is basically agreement with God. And biblically, it's agreement with God about our sins. And that's how we tend to think about it. But it also has many other New Testament connotations. It's, it's agreement with God about our state of being, about our health, about our circumstances, about history or what's truly taken place or what's truly happened, or about what we have observed as eyewitnesses so we can confess that, we can testify to that. So if we're able to move forward here with racial reconciliation to do that in our land, we need confession on all sides. Confession of sins, confession of bad attitudes, confessions of the truth, and confession of what God desires of his people. For instance, we've been teaching in the sermon series that all of us are made in the image of God. So all people need to be treated accordingly. That has to be part of our witness. That has to be part of our testimony. That has to be part of our confession. And in worship and ritual and liturgy and all of that, we confess things. We have to confess that we're all made in the image of God. And for much of this series, we've been acknowledging, we've been confessing what time has allowed us to regarding our nation's racist history of chattel slavery. The peonization and the Jim Crow era of nearly a a century since the Civil War, the genocide and the displacement of First Nations peoples, the internment camps which locked up American citizens, and the devastation that all of that has brought upon generations of Americans. The second week of the series, we had a pastor of Asian descent whose father and uncle were, uh, you know, uh, severely abused and mistreated during World War II in the South Pacific in an internment camp, a prisoner war camp, by uh, the, one of the Axis powers. And he happens to be one of our denominational leaders. He's a friend of mine. He actually called me every other week for the first six months since my uh, brain surgery last year uh, to check on me and to pray with me. He and his wife happened to be in our area vacationing a couple of weeks ago. Totally surprised me. In fact, Pastor Nathan came and ran to me after the second service and told me, told me, he's here, he's here. And I didn't know he was even coming. But he was encouraged by what our church is doing in this sermon series. He said that pastors all over our denomination are wringing their hands because they don't know what to do regarding these racial issues in our country right now. He says this church is leading the way by showing us what to do. You're inspiring us. You know, we've committed ourselves to telling the truth in this sermon series. Along with Reverend John Perkins' other three suggestions. To begin with God, to be one in Christ, and to preach the gospel. But what we haven't spent a lot of time on thus far in, our current, uh, in this sermon series is our current national circumstances regarding the racial tensions. So let's confess some of that today. Let's speak the truth about some of that today. First of all, two weeks ago when I spoke that our nation is not the same today as it was in the days of chattel slavery, as it was in the days of genocide and displacement of indigenous peoples, as it was in the days of internment camps, one of the references I made in that sermon to explain that was to say that now we have affirmative action. Well, you know what that statement was? That statement was a trigger for some people. 
And it is a big political trigger for some people. I wasn't hardly done with the first service. I wasn't even hardly off the platform here when a very bright young visitor approached me and wanted to challenge me on what I said. And I immediately told this young man, I wasn't endorsing affirmative action as if that is the solution to all of our nation's problems. Just that it has given opportunities to people in our nation who previously did not have them. And as a person born into poverty, who have spent literally half, nearly half of my life living in poverty, I know what happens and what has happened to many of those in our nation, people of color who have not had the privilege of having any kind of inheritance passed on, any kind of businesses or land or anything else passed on to them, because that is my experience. You know what I've received in total from my mom's passing, from my dad's passing, from my stepfather's passing, from all of my grandparents' passing? My total inheritance was $1,300. Presently, I have an uncle who's dying of cancer, completely impoverished, lives in a trailer house with no running water, can't afford his own funeral. So some of us in the family are going to be paying for it. Cindy and I are on the hook for that. You know what's going to happen? I will end up with less than zero when it comes to receiving anything from my family inheritance. So I understand a little bit, not all, but somewhat what happens when generations of people never have any inheritance passed down to them, where you have to literally start from zero to build up your life. So the Tulsa massacre that happened on May 31st, 1921, where all wealth was destroyed for black people in that area and didn't get passed on, that Black Wall Street was destroyed. All the lynchings that took place in the South where hundreds of, of breadwinners and, and husbands and fathers and families couldn't care for their families. So all those things have led to these struggles that we have. But you know, I have deep concerns, and I told this young man that affirmative action is harming many Asian Americans and even some white Americans by taking hard-earned opportunities away from them in a sort of reverse racism. I shared with this young man the example of our Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. He's a graduate, has a law degree from Yale uh, University, but he keeps it hidden in his basement because people come along and they think, oh, I only got that law degree because of the color of my skin, not because I earned it. Well, you got let in and got let in ahead of others because of the color of your skin. He says, no, no, no. When my grandfather took over raising us, when I was a young boy, he required us to do schoolwork every day. He worked hard to get us to go to a private Catholic school. We studied every single day. He's worked hard to be where he's at. You know, one of my main concerns with some of the criteria of affirmative action is that it takes away incentive from some people and the need for personal responsibility uh, for, to, to others. Prior to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 80% of families in black communities had a married father and mother in the home. When there were not social programs, it was essential that you had a father and a mother to make things go. Today, that figure is 27%. A hand out is not always a hand up. What do we have in return for that? Well, not counting natural deaths, but but death itself among black men, 95% of black men right now in America are dying at the hands of other black men. 
We have gang warfare. We have gun violence. And we have abortion rates right now for black Americans that hover around 40%, but they make up 12.6% of our population. And black people in America have actually declined in population from 1990 to 2012. So much so, if some of these trends continue, that by 2035 to 2040, it is considered that, so, that, that black people in America won't be a significant voting block anymore. That's what's happening. It's tragic. It's the most racist thing in our land right now. The loss of talent, the loss of genius, the loss of aptitude through abortion is astronomical, and it's devastating to our culture. Yet where people of color do complete, compete on a level playing field, like in sports, the arts, entertainment, where affirmative action really doesn't have a lot of bearing, black people excel. In fact, in many cases, they dwarf whites. The talent, the genius, the hard work of many, of many minorities comes through loud and clear when given the opportunity to stand upon their own two feet. Well, let's confess something else today. Let's speak for a moment truthfully about the contemporary issue of the social justice movement. The term itself was first coined by a couple of Jesuit priests in the 18th century, which, or the, excuse me, the 1800s, which is the 19th century. In Catholicism, social justice carried with it the understanding that individuals have the responsibility to work for the common good so that all people have the opportunity to live up to their dignity as beings fashioned in the image of God. Basically, in the traditional view, Social justice is about addressing structural barriers to fairness among groups in any given society. Now, Christian social justice historically has sought to create conditions between all people who are made in the image of God and in need of redemption to, able, to be able to live in solidarity and mutual love as pilgrims on the road to unity with Christ. As I have said in the past, all justice is social, but not all social justice is biblical justice. In the Bible, there are no adjectives with justice, just prefixes. It's either just or it's unjust. It's either justice or it's injustice. And secular social justice has completely departed from its original Christian dimension. In fact, Christians are often seen by social justice activists as the enemy of social justice. As Christians, we believe in the fallibility of human nature. We believe that all people, not just the wealthy, not just the powerful, not just the straight, not just the white, not just men, and all the other so-called oppressors are sinners in need of a redeemer. All people need to confess their sins. All people need to repent of their sins. All people need to place their faith in Jesus. The bottom line is all people need Jesus. And social justice projects unrighteousness solely onto particular groups like I just named. Thus, righteousness is not being one of them. Righteousness is not being one of the oppressors. And to reduce people to their economic status, racial, sexual, or gender identity is actually unjust. They call it justice, but biblically that is unjust and frankly, it's an anthropological error. And as Christians, justice is all about equal treatment and equal opportunity, but that doesn't necessarily mean equal outcomes. Some people, 
simply work harder than others. Some are simply more dedicated than others. Some are more responsible than others are. Some are more committed and persevere more than others do. Some people are better managers of their money, better managers of their time, better managers of their talent and of their resources than others are. Some are simply more talented than other people are. So you don't always get the same outcomes, even with equal treatment and with equal opportunities. Secular social justice is a political and economic uh, movement that uses the language of equality, diversity, inclusion, equity, and intersectionality, which at face value sounds sort of good. It sounds sort of righteous. And their goal is to reorder society into more equitable power relationships. And thus, people who resist social justice or who even simply question social justice are practicing hate. And they say you cannot, be re- you cannot reason with people who you know, push, push hate like that. And you cannot tolerate them. You can only defeat them and conquer them. In the current cult, and I'll call it cult, of secular social justice, the oppressors are generally white, male, heterosexual, Christian, and of course have to be labeled as patriarchal. The oppressed are minorities. They're women, sexual minorities, and religious minorities. And the funny thing is, the truly poor of our culture are relatively low on the hierarchy of oppression. If you doubt me on that, look at the most major group that's dominated the news in the last year. And they're not caring about anything with the poor or what's happening in the inner cities or any of those. They're not demonstrating and protesting any of those things. It's only to deal with law enforcement. That's it. Now, for the sake of example, with social justice right now, a white Christian man living on a monthly disability check in a rural village in a dumpy trailer house with no running water like my uncle is an oppressor. While a minority lesbian Ivy League college professor with a PhD is oppressed. A major issue with this modern notion of so, modern issue and notion of social justice being tied to group identity is how can God be the enemy of his own creation? How can God be the enemy of his own creatures? He loves the one, but he despises the other, really? He cherishes one group, but he hates those who are unwoke. Now, the best analogy as to why Christians cannot baptize or sanctify the modern cult of uh, social secular justice, which some people call the Gnosticism of our age, the new higher knowledge that some people are claiming to have in the church, or some like to call it the Trojan horse that's slipping its way into the church. The best analogy I know is that social justice is this great big train. And you have different cars on this train. You have the marriage car, which is right up close to the front. And anybody who's an adult in America should be able to be married. But what if we as a church say, you know, we don't know that a believer should marry an unbeliever. Oh, that's unjust. Anybody who wants to get married should be able to get married. Or what if we say, you know, this couple that's living together, we don't think that's gonna, they're going to make it to a lifelong relationship because 80% of them don't make Oh, that's socially 
unjust. What if a gay couple wants to get married? And we, we question that. Oh, that's socially unjust. Because equity is that everybody has everything the same. With wealth, with everything, all that, all the same. Well, what if we have a couple that came one time and wanted to have new age elements in their, in their wedding ceremony? Huh, we can't do that. Well, that's socially unjust. Then the next car is the abortion car. And the abortion car is that all women should have equal access to abortion. Rich, poor, uh, all ethnicities, every... Well, hold it a second. Should we even be supporting abortion? And if you wonder why Christians get foggy on the whole abortion issue, it's because of the social justice movement and the intersectionality. Because all of these cars on the train connect with each other. Well, well, I'm not endorsing abortion, but just that it's unfair that rich women can have abortions and, and poor women can't have abortions. And that's why maybe the government should be paying or they get into all this stuff. Or if you say, hey, it's a racist thing. I mean, minorities are d dying by the droves because of abortion. Oh, you know, then the next car on there is LGBTQA, I say A because of allies, plus because there's many other things. And if you disagree with anything along those movements, oh, that's socially unjust. Then there's the car of gender identity. Gender identity. And of course, man, the war that's being raged over uh, uh, you know, transgender and women's sports and bathrooms and showers. And if, if you, 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 you disagree with that, well... There's stalls in bathrooms, so that shouldn't be a problem who uses the bathroom because there's stalls in there. I mean, really? Really? But that's socially unjust. And you keep going on down the list. There's the economic car that everybody should have, you know, everything the same. And the same, doesn't matter how hard you work, how responsible you are, how much, you know, meritocracy plays into things. None of those things matter. And every one of these cars, and they all intersect. That's why these groups support one another in this process of social justice. Christians must always pursue justice and work for just, toward justice within the confines of the teaching of the Bible. And one of our confessions of faith in our denomination is the centrality of the Word of God. Remember, confession is important in all aspects of Christianity. Confession of our sin, confession of our faith, confession of our eyewitness testimony, confession of what has truly taken place in history, confession of our own state of being, our own health, and it all needs to be homologeo. It all needs to be in agreement with God. Sadly, we live in a culture right now that is in the middle of a monologue on racial reconciliation and not a dialogue. Only one side gets to talk. Only one side gets to determine the agenda. Only one side gets to message. Only one side gets to set the narrative. Only one side of the conversation gets to virtue signal. And the truth is, the answer to racism is not more racism. That's what you see out there. The answer to hate is not more hatred. The answer to bigotry is not more bigotry. The answer to classism, and frankly, you want to know a lot of things that are wrong in our culture right now, and many things that are being labeled as racism really are truly classism, okay? But that's another sermon, another series on a different time. But the answer to classism is not classism. The answer to white privilege is not black privilege or Asian privilege or Latino privilege or, or Native American privilege. The answer to any strongholds of white supremacy still left in our country 
is not black supremacy or any other form of ethnic superiority. All forms of hatred, all forms of racism, of bigotry, attitudes of superiority need to be confessed. To be bridge builders in the area of racial reconciliation, we need true confession from all sides. And we need true dialogue in that confession so people are hearing and listening to one another. And boy, oh boy, do we need the healing balm of forgiveness. After all, Jesus is the one who said we'd be forgiven to the extent that we forgive others. Our scripture reading today, Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. You know, when Jesus hung on the cross in Luke 24, verse 34, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He was forgiving the Roman soldiers who had put him on the cross. The Roman soldiers who had flogged him and beaten him and and gambled for his clothing and his items. He was forgiving the Roman soldier that was going to pierce him in the side with a spear in just a short while. He was forgiving the mockers who were scorning and laughing and those that spit on him. He was Forgiving Pilate, who sentenced him to be there, and the leaders of Israel who handed him over, and all of the people in the crowd who yelled, crucify him, and every person that's come along since, including us. Even though people didn't ask for forgiveness, he forgave them. And when, when, when Jesus did that, he set an example for us. We need forgiveness in our country right now, because without it, people are going to continue on under the control of bitterness, anger, and resentment. C.S. Lewis said to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. In other words, we forgive people because we have been forgiven. Forgiving others is the most Christ-like thing that we can do. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. You know, when the nation of Rwanda began to heal from its tragic genocide and and mutilation of many, 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 many thousands, I I don't even remember how many thousands were killed and how many were chopped up and maimed uh, of their people at the hands of different tribes, the tribalism that was going on there in the late 20th century. Do you know what led toward healing in that country? It was forgiveness that led the way toward reconciliation and healing. We see the same model in our country at work in some places. On June 17th, which is coming up here in just a handful of days, uh, 2015, six years ago now, Dylan Roof, a white man, attended a Bible study at Mother Emanuel AME Church. That's a black church in Charleston, South South Carolina. And at the end of that Wednesday evening Bible study, that prayer meeting, he reached into his backpack, pulled out a handgun, and shot nine black attendees, killing all of them. While in the county jail, he wrote a manifesto of white supremacist garbage that I will not repeat, nor will I dignify in any way. When the court proceedings reached the place in the trial for family members to share uh, impact statements, one after another of the surviving loved ones shared. Nadine Collier, whose mother was killed in the shooting, said, I forgive you. You took something precious away from me. 
I will never be able to talk to her or hold her again. But I forgive you. God have mercy on your soul. The sister of DePayne Middleton doctor, uh, another uh, shooting victim of that day, said, I'm a work in progress, and I acknowledge that I am very angry with you. But my sister taught me that we are a family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we forgive you. Anthony Thompson, a family member of the deceased Myra Thompson, said, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, and give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so he can change your ways no matter what happens to you. To build bridges of racial reconciliation, we must follow these precious examples and we must employ the tools of confession and forgiveness. Let's pray together. God, our Father, this morning, in these times where Juneteenth is going to be celebrated this coming Saturday, when so many will be remembering, God, um, the freedom that came to all of our citizens, Lord, we remember that today. And we acknowledge these tensions that continue to exist in our culture and society. But Lord, I pray that we'd be people who don't get all wound up because of the latest news, but that we would be people who confess, God, our faith in you, practice our faith in you, love all people uh, in you, God, and that we recognize even when false teaching is trying to make its way into the church and that we confess the truth about you, God, even in all of that. And Lord, above all, that we will practice the steps that are necessary to build bridges in this process of racial reconciliation. The steps of confession, confession of faith, confession of the truth, confession of our sin, all these important aspects of confession. And Lord, too, that we would be a forgiving people, recognizing that Jesus, you set that example for us to follow. Oh, I pray for healing in our land, God, and may it begin with the church. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.